Thanks so much for tuning in again to the Living Lilith podcast. I'm Christelle Pacheco, your hostess and producer of the podcast. <laughs> I appreciate you guys coming back around uh, for round four, which is the fourth episode of the podcast. So thank you. Today, we are all so lucky. And I am very, very excited to introduce to you, Miss Brittany Gondolfi. Thank you. Who, oh, my God. I'm so honored and there are so many words floating through my brain right now about you and how I can describe you. Brittany and I have been friends for about a decade now, and we met in New Orleans uh, back in, I don't know, I think it was like 2013. Was it? It was 2013, yeah. It was 2013. It's been 10 years officially. Yeah. Oh my God, it has been officially 10 years, yeah. Uh, we met back in New Orleans and others, uh, really awesome circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> Wild times. <laughs> so, some wild, wonderful, very feminine, feral, feminine, energetic circumstances. Um, and so I'm really excited to have her today. We have a lot of news we want to share with you all. Uh, so thank you, Britt, for being here. Very honored and excited, I get, you know, uh, to talk to you about the, all the things. You look wonderful and, and full of life and vivacious and shining. <laughs> Well, I'm so thankful that you're doing this. I got so emotional on um, one of your previous podcasts when you were talking about like the sorority and the sisterhood, you know, women who have had particular life experiences. And I was like, this is so important. This is really important to have longer conversations about these kinds of experiences. You know, we can all get like the flash in the pan, fast TikTok perspective, but it's something different to share an intimate conversation and so I'm like I'm honored and just for everyone who's watching like we're gonna be like getting verklempt with each other and getting like yeah <laughs> what's sentimental. We, I know which which we should things like this will happen and I, I think it adds the extra magic because we have to bring out the humanity in yeah. uh, out of the personality I mean this is what is missing and I feel that people are desperately desiring Humanity, uh, true, vulnerable connection, honest storytelling, because the truth is we are all naked underneath our clothes, right? We all know we're wearing clothes, so let's just admit it, you know? Um, with that said, I mean, let's talk about uh, how we met, and, and I want to have that lead to why you're specifically here, which is a really powerful announcement, incredible announcement, that I think is the reason why it's so important to talk about it here on this podcast in particular is because it has to do with the journey of the feminine, right? Uh, you represent this journey, the journey of the feminine and how she traverses worlds in a lot of ways from the underworld to the overworld, <laughs> I guess, from the out, from the inside to the outside and, you know, trekking that and, and documenting that story. So I look forward to getting to that. Um, Tell people how we met. I, 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 that was, that's a great story. I love to share it. We so met, um, we met where the best friendships are formed in a strip club mirror <laughs> at the fourth floor of the penthouse uh, in New Orleans about a decade ago. I remember 
all the ladies upstairs were taking their time getting ready. And for people who don't know about strip club economics, the earlier you get to the club as an employee, the less you have to pay the house. So I was one of those girls. I was like, I'm gonna get there as early as possible. And so I just remember running upstairs because we were getting really busy. And I said, all right, girls, if you're going to be the Madonna or the whore, it's time to decide because the boys are coming. And I remember you locked eyes with me from the mirror and I saw your eyes in the mirror and you're like, I got your number, girl. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> does she know about this archetype structure? And then just from there, I don't know, you were just a rock for me um, during that time. And you really helped me survive it, like on an emotional level, process it, um, walk out of it without too much shame. We all have shame, no matter what kind of life path you've lived or whatever skeletons you feel you have in your closet, shame is a pandemic in our society, you know? And knowing you, uh, you helped me Instead of judging myself, I was able to look at the world and the circus that we were living in that made that choice such an obvious one for me at that time in my life. And so, you know, that's how we, we met in the club. We're the best yeah. love. <laughs> best love starts in the club. <laughs> I don't know. That, that's probably not true. <laughs> no, it's, it's, well, I mean, to meet each other um, in that space with that nakedness right? Like literal nakedness, um, I think is, is very, a very powerful symbol of, of how women, um, I don't know, the community of women and how we interact with each other versus perhaps how straight men interact with each other in some ways. I think that we start off a lot more naked all the time in many other ways too, the vulnerability, the way that we share. <clears throat> so, I'm very excited to, to talk to you about how this has informed your life. Um, the stripping, the locker room, New Orleans. Like how has all this informed your life in a way that has led you to where you are? And you know, you are about to graduate from law school. Yeah. Which it's is wild. That's <laughs> wild. Yes. wild. So tell us what, what you're going to do after so that. I'm going to do something crazy um, in my own book of crazy things that I've done. This is definitely the wildest, but I'm going to run for state Senate. There are 39 state senators in Louisiana that craft and create the policies that have a massive impact on people's quality of life. And one thing I noticed about a lot of the people who are crafting bills and legislation that control, you know, Louisiana is that they don't have the accumulation of life experiences that I've personally had, meaning they are not able to truly represent um, a vast majority of people in the state. You know, we're a tourist economy. Um, I've spent most of my life from like 15 to my dancer days, you know, a waitress practicing politics. I've always been in the service industry, trying to get through school, involving myself in some community project, you know, trying to have a life that was more than just um, making money and doing something for someone else. And it just always felt like no matter how many protests you go to, no matter how many community meetings you go to, that you're just like pushing up against a stone wall. And I'm not saying that running for office isn't pushing against a stone wall. I'm not that naive, you know, for sure. But all this to say, I don't see a lot of people um, in the political arena that are representing working class people. You know, so from being a waitress to a dancer to a teacher um, to someone who worked for a really incredible nonprofit to being a law student and being a single mother, you know, my life experience helps me very easily relate to a demographic of people that I don't think feel represented by our politic. And I think people, at least for myself, I know that I constantly look in the mirror and say like, well, who are you to do this? You know, like you don't come from politics, like you don't come from law. You know, my own inner voice is very critical. So I can only imagine, you know, how people 
might feel, you know, if you're working in the service industry or working in retail, but like you have an aspiration to enter into the political arena, I'm hoping I can make an example of myself and say, look, people, if I can do it, you can certainly do it as well. I think we're at a place in our politics where we can see that just about anyone can run. And I'm, I'm kind of going in on that everyday people running. Well, you know, I think that since Donald Trump became the president, you know, that's kind of put everything on the table. Yeah. (laughs) It's very nice. If he can grab them by the pussy, we can, you know, win over their hearts with a little bit of old fashioned pussy power, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we can use it for, uh, you know, good, right. Use it for good. Um, that's the, that's the interesting thing I've, I've always thought, uh, and the fun fact about the, Donald Trump having been become the president of the United States is like, well, if, if he was able to do it, it does allow all the other outliers, whether you're coming from a leftist space or, or the, or the right, even, I mean, really across the board, it really does kind of green light the outlier to, to dare to participate and throw their hat in that ring. I completely agree. I, I've been doing a lot of, uh, soul searching the past couple of years because I was like, what am I going to do with this law degree? And I was like, well, I think the only thing worse than being a lawyer is being a politician. So let's just (laughs) race to the bottom, (laughs) you know, so, but I was, you know, writing, like, why am I doing this? Like really asking myself, you know, where your intentions at and like Trump was my like top two reasons. I'm like, look, if he can do this, you know, and he, despite, um, the vitriolic rhetoric that came out of that person's mouth and the um he he really he really showed our nation where we were at in terms of you know when people were able to see who resonated um and then the polarization of our politics really became very evident but there was a jokerness to him and you and I've talked about this he was a clown like in in the archetypal sense he he was a clown. And, and I honestly, I identify as a clown. I identify as someone who lives to make people laugh and I want to bring joy to uncomfortable situations. And I was like, well, I certainly didn't vote for him. I'll tell you that. I didn't vote for Hillary either. I'll tell you that too. <laughs> but I'm like, well, if that clown can do it, you know, my brand of clown should certainly be able to jump into the, to the ring. Yeah, you know, and I I love that you brought up the word archetype. Um, another way that we can say that is the word symbol or symbolic, right? For people who don't know what the word archetype means or what that means or is, uh, there's a symbolic clownish energy to him. And I, and I think that in a lot of ways, the symbolic clown gives us space and helps us transition. You know what I mean? It's like if you're creating an elixir, and you have to put an extra carrier oil. <clears throat> it's like the clown is like a carrier oil. <laughs> yeah, it, it helps to integrate whatever the new thing is that's coming in, whether that's politically, culturally, or literally, like for medicine or something that you're making in the kitchen. Uh, it, it's like this bonding agent or something. And so I, I think it's really powerful and fascinating that as a clown, you're embodying that as a female clown. Right? Yeah. As, we, as a, they, they make us get dressed up uh and put on faces from a very young age so like we're we're, <laughs> we're preconditioned right, we're preconditioned, right. you know and right. so if we can't laugh at ourselves then uh it's gonna be a long road ahead so um the the stripping at the penthouse in new orleans how would you say that that experience prepared you for this well, I mean, my bad joke, and I guess I'll just start with it here, is that if you're looking for someone to go negotiate with a bunch of old white men and not be divisive and win over their hearts, I'm like, slap my ass, coach. I'm your player, you know, pick your player. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> so that's a terrible joke. But um, no, I, goodness, I came into stripping after being married to someone from a very patriarchal um, culture. I married a man that I met in travel from Rome and having a New Orleans woman married to a Roman Italian man is a water and oil circumstances. And so when I 
started dancing and working at the strip club, you know, let's be clear. I, I did the evolution that most women do. You know, you start waiting tables there. <laughs> you start selling shots and then you're going to private rooms. And then before you know it, you're like, okay, forget it. I'm going to go. <laughs> this is <laughs> right. I can't do it anymore. Um, right. So I went into dancing with a super negative perspective of men um, having had this really unhealthy, toxic relationship where I've constantly felt like hypersexualized. I felt like a commodity. I didn't feel um, seen by my partner. I felt very much like I was just kind of an arm piece. So my spirit was already in a place where I um, realized that my ability to be in a sexual energy or present myself in that feminine beauty had a certain commercial value if you will. And so I came into the club mad at men. Um, and ironically, you know, I, I, I served my two years. <laughs> I, it, is uh, like a, it is like a service. <laughs> it is like service, like I'm in the reserves. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, it's like community service. So, you know, in some, I mean, in some ways. I, I began to be like, look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna survive a night here if I have this angry chip on my shoulder towards these men. I mean, of course, like you meet the stereotypical like rude man in the strip club that really goes there because it's fun to reject someone. You know, a lot of men go to strip clubs because they really like to say, no, 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 sweetheart, I'm fine. And, and that feeling <laughs> of being in power you know, because they have the money and the woman has the experience, you know, that's what they go to enjoy. It's like, yeah, you do cross paths with those people, but you also will cross paths with people who are lonely and who are looking to connect and looking to feel cared for and looking to feel desired. And even if it's a fictional you know, role play scenario, people are still shopping for that. And they always have been. And I began to just kind of feel really sad, not just for men, but just for our society. Cause you know, deep in my heart, it's like, I, I knew every night that I walked into the club, I'd rather be Netflixing and chilling at home with someone that I love, but it's the economy, stupid. So we gotta like, <laughs> we gotta be here, you, you know, work with what you got sometimes. You know? Yeah. I mean, I had the hand like at that time in my early twenties, like God, the universe would have you, which whatever you call it. I had been blessed slash cursed with a particular hand to play. And so what I did love about dancing was that I was able to make the most of my time. It was the only job I've ever had where I could work one day a week and have all my bills paid, which opened the door for me to go back to school, finish my degree. It opened the door for me to get really involved, like in some incredible projects in my community, which I know it sounds stupid, but it's like, I enjoyed being a stripper because I was able to volunteer. But like, when you go to the club and you meet women, no one's there, at least when I was there, no one was there because they're like, I just love this. I just, they're, they're on a mission. Every woman in there is absolutely on a mission, whether it's to support her family, buy a piece of property, finish a degree. You know, I mean, it, it, it's about making the money that you need to turn your life into what you hope it can become. And when you're in there, in that dressing room, you're kind of on your own spiritual front lines Right. It was also super isolating. I'll say yeah. that, you know, I mean, I talk more about it now that it's got like years behind me than I did then when I, when I was there, I think there were like three people, four, maybe five people in my life that like I was open with it and eventually started to talk to people about it as I got more comfortable. But this is not something that you call your grandmother and be like, grandma, I just got home from work. It's 7 a.m. <laughs> I'm saying, you know, you just, right. you don't, you know, so I learned a lot about shame, the economy, um, and the sort of unnecessary battle of the sexes that's mm -hmm. been playing out for, for a long time now. I'm sorry. I've been rambling. No, I'm no, you're not actually. I wanted to bring this back around to what you just said with the shame and the economy, because it revealed to me, and, and this is what I hear you saying, is it revealed to me that the economy works because it's rooted in shame. 
shame has to continue to exist in a lot of ways in order for our economy to continue to exist the way that it does. So this is what I discovered too. And it's like I had to go and do this work with my body to see it for myself. I had to see it. Like it just was an epiphany for me one one day to realize that this is in everything um, <clears throat> and that I was being asked to hold the shame for, for everyone. So for women who are watching this, in Louisiana, um, for women who are married, for mothers, housewives, and so on, where and how can they relate to that experience of the stripper? Uh, do you think they do and they're afraid to? Can you talk a little bit about that? This is America. Everybody, unless you're incredibly privileged, you're going to have to work a job you hate to survive unfortunately like that's where we're at and that job that a lot of us have to work to survive is probably not compensating people enough to live a life of dignity i mean the whole shame thing i still deal with it i mean i had to go back and wait tables in my last year of law school and i remember that we had this like really fancy party and um all of the people at the party were from this community that i went to high school in and, you know, they're all, you know, doing quite well, big rings, beautiful dresses, beautiful heels, successful husbands. And I go in the back and I tell like the chef, I'm like, God, give me the strength to not have to tell anyone that knows me in this room. Like, don't worry, I'm in law school, you know, because here I am like in my mid thirties, mm -hmm. you know, and I have an apron on and I'm still, you know, they call it a server, a servant. And even, you know, I've read all the Brene Brown books, you know, I'm leaning into my vulnerabilities, but like in that moment, I was like, please, someone send me home. Like, I don't want them to know I'm a waitress. And it's like, wow. I was like, wow. I, 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 if I'm feeling it, I know that we're all feeling it because the jobs that so many of us in our American society take to keep the economy going there's so much shame associated with the retail worker, the service worker, you know, there's this feeling of maybe I know that I felt like, well, this is a stepping stone. And it's like, well, what if it's okay if it's not, but like, how can we get rid of the shame if you're still struggling, you know? Right. Right. Like, if you're living in a culture and if you're living in an economy where everyone's work is valued to the point where you can live off of that work, I think that would definitely decrease the level of shame that we're carrying, mm -hmm. you know, but we live in such a service servant tailored economy, especially in new Orleans, especially in Louisiana, especially in new Orleans. Yeah. That's, that's actually the biggest, um, isn't that the biggest portion of the economy is, is in, in new Orleans. I mean, that the irony there too, everyone is that uh, no service worker can afford to live by the French quarter you know, you know, now I think more than, than ever, uh, the, the prices have gone up like everywhere else, the, the cost of living housing is out of control. So imagine having to go live in another like Metairie, right. Or someplace else outside of the city to drive in and then where you got to park your car. So this is the ironic truth about the service industry and places like new Orleans that are relying on it, that the people who actually are in the service industry and work in the service industry, they can barely, uh, you know, drive to work, right, and find parking and, and afford to to actually afford their job. So that's they're a reality. Making, yeah, they're still making two dollars an hour. They're still living like off the gratis, off the grace, you know, off the customer, you know, giving them a little extra, you know, a little gift. And and I think when I when I look back at my the the arc of my you know waitress dancer teacher, law student, nonprofit worker, you know, maybe a politician if they'll, if they'll have me. Um, <laughs> when I look at it, I, I, I feel like completely economically groomed to have been open to being a dancer, to dealing with that level of sexual harassment, because I started working in restaurants when I was 15, you know, and at that point you already start to wear the mask, to put on the show, you know, to, allow a certain level of flirtation that maybe on the street or in your classroom or in the outside world is not comfortable, but the social dynamic between the customer and the servant. I mean, I remember being a teenager and feeling uncomfortable with the way that 
you know, a person might look at me or a person might speak to me, but like when you're in a fine dining restaurant, you know, in an upscale community, you keep your mouth shut and you just do it because you know that you're going to get a bigger tip. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, the thing is that that game and, and that sort of um, power play, it exists in every space. Mm-hmm. And not, you know, I think the strip club and women who are at the strip club, I think that that work is just blatantly honest about it mm -hmm. in ways, in ways that it's, you got to play the pretense game outside of that underground space. You got to play those other kinds of games. Uh, but the power exchange and, and, and the power plays happen all the time, everywhere in every space. So um, you participating in that power play in, in, a place, in a place like a strip club, I think is, is very honest. Um, that is a front lines kind of job. That's a, on the front lines of culture. You get the most raw materials when you are looked at, right, as somebody who is less than uh, because of what you do. For instance, yeah. you, you, you get, so you get to collect really raw material, not ready-made material from that kind of experience. And I can see how you're going to be bringing that, you know, into your, into your work as a politician. It's informed your wisdom. It's definitely given me a certain level of humility, you know, because I know that I'm not the only person that's had this experience, you know, and I, I'm the kind of person that I attempt to smile and wave at as many people who are willing to make eye contact in the, in the social sphere. Like I'm not the kind of person to pass someone on the street who's homeless. Like, even if I don't have anything, I think just like acknowledging people's humanity is something, um, because when you're, and I think I, I'm not going to say I pulled it from dancing. I mean, I was raised in a culture of caring, you know, um, and caring for others. But I think in dancing, you know, not to quote Michelle Obama, but like when they go low, we got to go high, but like, yeah. it's a way of survival, like to be the kindest dancer in the room, mm. to be able to make eye contact with every person, whether they're sizing you up, judging you. I mean, people don't realize this, but a lot of men that come into the club have um, a very antagonistic perspective of the women that they're coming to see I remember men I remember hearing men being like well why are you here you know like if you're nice or if you show any level of humanity you know if you if you kind of if that's the mask you wear because every every woman in there every dance every performer you're you're masked on some level you have to be you're not going to make it you you can't be a raw nerve in there um but this idea that they're you know the men are perceiving these women as wanting something from them while completely denying that they too want something right. from the, yeah. these performers. Yeah. So being able to deal with that level of antagonism, because like, I mean, I was raised Christian, but I got into Buddhism. So I'm trying to be on an equal footing. I'm not trying to hold myself higher than anyone, you know, so that having that spiritual perspective and being in the club it felt like an emotional gauntlet, like the level of prayer and meditation mm. that I would have to do before and after a shift. It was, it was a lot. It, it well, took it out of me. Yeah. It's, it's a constant, it's like the, the, the it, going to work there, you have to be in this constant meditation. You're in meditation. You have to be in this bubble in this, in this way, because if you have a lot of empathy, which you do, uh, and, and a lot of compassion, and that's what I hear you saying is that you can to, to be able to go into a place like that and, and look at the people who might be judging you and probably are judging you, right, on, on a whole other level, and still be curious about who they are instead of judgmental but curious, which opens up the door, um, and, and show compassion, I think is, is profound, right? That's a profound lesson to learn. Uh, I, I wanted to bring this conversation around to the work that I've been very excited that you're doing too with nature. Yeah. With nature. Forget the club. Yeah, Let's but talk the, about the real stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's the stuff that I think there's a lot of information you gather from that experience. And I, and I think it's important for women to hear that that's an experience you had, right? Uh, yeah. Because this is very inspiring for a lot of women who may maybe feel like they 
they want to do something like what you're doing, but they feel ashamed for something else maybe, or maybe the same thing or not. Um, but this work that you're doing with nature, I'd love to hear about that. Tell us about that. So um, after I, it's a, it's a little convoluted long story that I'll try to make short, but when I was a dancer, every time I had a really great shift, I would go to an antique store the next day and buy a typewriter. I have no idea why, but it was just like my reward for myself um, on really good shifts. And I came out of dancing with like a ton of typewriters. And when I quit <laughs> and I went back to waitressing and I started volunteering at a school doing an after-school writing program on these typewriters. Well, the school got an incredible grant to do an intercultural conversation program where they would take a group of Native American students and a group of multicultural non-Native students. And they'd have them meet once a month for a year virtually. Mm -hmm. And then they would take them to like a sacred cultural site or to an environmental conference and have just like this massive exchange of information, of culture, of story, of history. And so I have been kind of volunteering, interning, like assisting their programming for like six years now. Yeah. And in my last year and a half in law school, this nonprofit has decided to start really supporting Native American tribes that are interested in passing a law that acknowledges the rights of nature, which seems kind of weird because we already have environmental laws. Like we have the Clean Water Act, mm -hmm. we have the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, we, we have the Endangered Species Act, we have NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act. You know, we have various laws that um, claim to protect nature, but what I found in my limited legal experience in my, my three years of law school is that these laws are not really so much protecting nature as they are regulating the abuse of nature, uh, you know, like yeah. how much abuse can, can she take and balance really... against how much profit we can make. And so somebody came up with a crazy idea that if a corporation can be defined as a person in court, why not a natural element? And why do we need to do that? Well, we need to do that because our legal system has this bonkers rule that makes it really difficult for people to sue in the name of nature. You know, it's like that whole Lorax thing, like who speaks for the trees? Right. Well, in our legal system, if losing the trees loses money for you, you can speak for the trees. And that's like pretty crazy. <laughs> you know, it's like we have to be able to show or people who want to file a lawsuit to stop something bad from happening under our current legal regime, they have to be able to demonstrate that they're going to have some sort of suffering from it. And the suffering is mostly economic. That's what the courts are looking for. Right. That's and so, so powerful. It's wild. Um, there have been tons of towns and municipalities that have tried to pass what they're calling a rights of nature law. And a lot of those people have gotten sued. Um, like Lake Erie, Lake Erie, uh, the township there, they passed a law that said, you know, Lake Erie's got a right to be clean. And it was a ballot measure, meaning they put it on the ballot and everyone in the town like overwhelmingly voted for it, Republican, Democrat, independent. The next day they were sued because farmers who were using fertilizer that was contributing to algae blooms in Lake Erie were like, well, wait, you guys are going to sue us for violating the rights of the nature. This is like a this is an ambiguous law. This is a violation of the 14th Amendment. This is against my due process to do with my property as I will. Oh, wow. And so our current legal system hates the idea of giving nature rights. And it may not be something that we see in our lifetime, but tribal nations are sovereign. Um, and even though the Supreme Court has tried to destroy tribal, uh, tribal sovereignty and our Congress has in various seasons of emotion, <laughs> you know, either really supported tribes or just treated tribes like absolute garbage. Um, they still have the right to pass laws to govern and regulate their territories. And so our hope is that by encouraging tribes to carry out these laws, it can change the consciousness, the legal consciousness of our nation and say wow. that nature does need to have her day in court. You know, it's really interesting. It's so interesting 
for so many reasons on so many levels that corporations, which to me is the narcissistic child, right? If you're going to look at this as a symbolic way, they have a right to just destroy and run run havoc on whoever, whenever, whenever they feel like, and daddy's going to bail them out. <laughs> you know, the narcissistic, rich, entitled child, right? Um, in that way. But nature is on the opposite end of that. It, it's like the, the feminine. And so we're saying again and again, still today, right? Looking at this as, in a symbolic way that nature has no rights and that she's just there to be exploited at the will of mankind as he sees as he sees fit, right, with his narcissistic child, the corporation. So I, this it's an interesting way to look at it. And when I hear you talking about that, it makes it so clear. People, um, when, when you're hurt in our legal system, one of the things that you can do is you can file a lawsuit and say, you hurt me, you harmed me, and now this is how much it costs to make me right, to make me whole. I'm going to need you to pay up. And you bring that grievance to court. And that's how justice comes about. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you can do with our legal system is if you see a harm that's coming towards you, you can say, whoa, you're about to hurt me. I got to go tell the court to tell you to stop. And so the rights of nature movement is essentially saying that people need to be able to do this, but in the name of the environment, like look at what's going on in Atlanta with this, like defend the forest and this whole idea that, you know, the Atlanta, or sorry, the Fulton, I don't, I don't know who owns the property, the county or the city, somebody tell me later, but basically they're selling this property for like a dollar a year lease. And they're going to clear cut this forest to build a training facility for police officers to practice military tactics. They're going to clear a whole forest. So like they have protesters, they, you know, they've, they filed lawsuits, but as of now, no one's able to sue in the name of the forest. No one's able to sue and say, you know, maybe they can say that the, they need to protect this because there's a public trust, you know, like the, the government is entrusted with the responsibility of protecting this and they're failing in their duty. But if our legal system recognize that that forest has a right to exist oh and that we are in an interdependent relationship with that forest. And then when that forest goes, our quality of air is going to decrease. The ecosystem is going to suffer. Wildlife is going to suffer there's going to be a ripple effect right now. It's really difficult to litigate or to have a lawsuit to protect nature um, because there's so many permits and processes that, that give the okay. Like here in Louisiana, Lake Morapal, like this one, you can see this little lake right here, but they're about to start pumping carbon waste and every single swamp, loving fisherman creole cajun you know swamp people person here you know they're going to their community meetings they're writing their legislature they're saying we don't want this but the main tool that we have in our legal system you know is just filing an injunction an injunction is basically like you go tell big daddy court to tell whoever's about to mess with you to cut it out it's super difficult because nature is property Right. And that's the bottom line is that in this American property legal system, you pretty much have the right to do with your property what you will. And so when someone purchases a little piece of swampland and they want to start pumping carbon waste, you know, into the earth there, the law says that that person who owns the title, who owns that deed, they own everything above it and everything below it. And I think that we're going to have to start recognizing that not only does nature have a right to be protected and people need to be easily able to file lawsuits in defense of nature, but like we, we have a right to say if my neighbor is going to do something that's going to harm this ecosystem, don't I have a right to tell them that we don't want this here? Mm. So. You know, I mean, the rights of nature movement is 
internationally, you know, there are countries such as Ecuador, they've put it into their constitution. Um, New Zealand has recognized the rights of uh, River, the Wanganui, and they actually said that this tribe is going to be the party that can litigate, protect, regulate. You know, there's all kinds of examples on the international level where people are saying, you know what, if we're going to give McDonald's the right to be a plaintiff, we are going to have to give this rainforest the right to go to court too, you know? <laughs> I mean, that reminds me of, uh, it's just a little extra branch off the train. Uh, no pun really intended there with the tree reference, <laughs> but it's, it's the law of polarity. Well, it's like, well, if one thing, one side of the polarity exists, the other side does too. It's not about whether we believe it exists or not. It does because this one exists. The polarity must exist as well and does yeah. exist as well. And it, it, it's really interesting to connect the dots again to the feminine that the owner of the land, you know, can beat her, beat his wife. <laughs> he can <laughs> inject all kinds of chemicals inside of her and do whatever he wants and exploit her for his own financial gain. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's just this constant metaphor. Um, the, the, uh, the tribes that you were working with, I know you're going back and forth a lot to the pioneers, right. Up in California. Yeah. Can you tell yes. me about that and talk about that as well? So right now, um, yes, I am basically working with the Bioneers. They've been around for 30 years. They're um, an environmental nonprofit that really focuses on um, novel solutions to the really complicated environmental catastrophe we're living in because like no matter where you fall on the political spectrum like you know that there's like a shit ton of plastic in the ocean right like there's there's this like <laughs> there's this con like you know that like clear cutting the amazon is like super bad <laughs> so I, mean, I, I love working with them and for them because they bring together a lot of voices and perspectives that don't often get showcased in, in the world of environmentalism, mm -hmm. um, namely like indigenous voices. Um, and so currently we are lending some support to a tribe in Massachusetts that is really concerned about the herring. Their um, herring are an anadromous fish, meaning they, they live their lives in the ocean when it's time to mate and to fall in love and to make more baby herring they, they go inland and they swim up these streams and creeks and rivers and they go to these really calm peaceful ponds and they make love and they make children and, and then all the herring babies grow up and they all go back to the Atlantic together <laughs> not not right now right now um there has been so much development so much alteration of the natural environment that the state of Massachusetts has had to create these artificial structures and they call them fish ladders. So the fish are, you know, they're trying to get up this ladder that's replacing a very smooth and easy Creek. And they're just not getting there. I mean, they're, <laughs> this fish ladder is like really high pressured. It's incredibly steep. And so the tribe wants to rebuild it. They want to renaturalize it. And so the nonprofit goes and like we're giving uh, scholarships to youth within the tribe to take up a social media campaign. We are doing scholarships for these youth to go to Sitka, Alaska, and to meet with other indigenous students who are also facing their own unique herring crisis so that they can collaborate. And we are helping the youth craft um, a law for their tribal council to pass that's going to essentially deputize the tribe as this fish's guardian. And that's the hope. That's, that's the hope that's is that, you know, that the tribe can exercise that sovereign authority and say, you know what, we can rebuild this. We must rebuild this. And we need to do everything within our power to protect this species. Um, Cause the federal government and the state, you know, they did their best, but the population is still, sinking and plummeting right and so i mean it's silly it seems silly you're like oh it's just a fish but it's like that one fish you know is a key integral piece of a very complex ecosystem and to see a government care so much about a fish it it's really inspiring because 
I think that's the only way that we're going to rescue ourselves is showing that level of deep care for something that is being ignored. Right. Um, And, you know, and this consciousness that you have and, and it's, and it's powerful and deep. I've known you a a long time or definitely long enough to see what you've done with uh, these raw materials and how you immediately put action behind any new wisdom and knowledge that comes to you, how how is it that you are looking to apply now all of this knowledge, all of this compassion, all of this courage and uh, creativity and understanding to to working for Louisiana? Like, what is your vision? Oh, this, your, is my- I, this is this is your <laughs> home. This is my baby. You are I- the you are the swampiest woman I've ever met. I can tell everybody that your love of your state is it goes unmatched and it's just beautiful and you make me miss Louisiana. I miss Louisiana anyway, but uh, you know, I, I just, you're in one person, you know, uh, sort of encompass the, a lot of the vibe and energy of that beautiful magical place. What is it that you want to bring to Louisiana? I want to bring um, a more unified vision. Our politic here is so divisive. And one of the things that I've learned in my coming of age tale is that the things that we're arguing about in the politic have nothing to do with politics. Mm. You know, there are conversations that are dominating our political arena that just need to get out of there. I mean, the question is, we citizens contribute money and contribute rule makers to this thing we call the government. And people are talking about like, oh, you can't trust the government. You can't wait for the government. Like we are the government. Whoever steps in to the forum to create rules is there to basically say, this is what we have to work with in terms of money, resources, and power. And this is what we can do to help. Mm -hmm. And I would like our political arena, the forum, the the republic, you know, (laughs) I would like our republic to be asking the question, what can we do for the people who are suffering the most? And in Louisiana, you know, everyone that runs for office does that bit, like we're the poorest, we're the, you know, our education system is the worst. Like we are the most polluted and like, it's true. It's true. But I think one of the reasons that we're stuck there is that we're arguing about culture and religion and sex and sexuality. And like, I'm sorry, like who I choose to call God and who you choose to call God is like the most personal decision that anyone could make. And it has nothing to do with our government and who someone chooses to love is none of the government's business and how someone chooses to dress and how they choose to call themselves and how they choose to exist in the world has nothing to do with anyone. That's not the question. Rome didn't get aqueducts by arguing about, you know, whether or not people should love certain people or dress in certain ways, okay? (laughs) Rome got aqueducts because people went to the forum and were like, we need some water. And like, (laughs) and so I just, I don't know. I, one thing I forgot to mention is that I, um, when I was a waitress, I, I used to work at a women's clinic and a clinic that provided abortion services. And so when the Supreme Court passed the Dobbs decision and Louisiana criminalized uh, abortion and made it a crime for a woman to say, I can't be a parent right now. Like I have the chance to be a parent right now, but I can't. When that when that became a crime, I was like, well, shit, I now have to run because I mean, apart from like the, you know, we don't have a lot of strippers in the Senate and I don't really, you know, I don't like to call myself a stripper, but I, <laughs> there was a time, you know, it, well, it's, it's, it's the, it's the, it's, it's the, the clown, right? You were an entertainer. You provided a community service. <laughs> That's what I always <laughs> called it. <laughs> I was a smiling, compassionate, non-judgmental face in a bikini. Right. <laughs> but, um, I mean, there's, There's no one in our politic that has actually held women's hands during that incredible procedure. And Mm. 
I, I have, I, I had an abortion in my late teens. I didn't know how to process it because I was raised, you know, one side of my family was very evangelical Protestant Christian. And one side of my family was very, very Catholic. And so when I was growing up with a teen mom, I was always like, well, if I find myself pregnant, I'll just keep it. Well, when it came to that moment where I found myself pregnant and I was back waiting at a fancy restaurant, barely able to pay my bills. I knew my boyfriend didn't really love me. I was like, oh no, like, oh no, 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 no. And it took me a lot to process, you know, that decision. And one of the ways that I did was that I went to go intern and work at a women's clinic. And I was the intake counselor. I was the person that, you know, a woman on her day or procedure would talk to someone and I would go through her medical history. I would explain to her what the procedure is like. And then I would check a box whether or not she was seemed to me that she was clear in her decision. And just asking someone the simple question, like, when did you find out you were pregnant? You know, and, and letting them unravel and tell the story of how, they, how they're here. No one wants to have, no, no one's stoked to be in that position. No one wants to have to make that choice. And... I get equally mad at the people, you know, advocating for abortion, you know, where it's such a hard stance of like anytime on demand. It, it just, it's like, it's a little bit harder than that, yeah. you know, just as mad as I get at the people who want to throw a woman in jail, right? you know, for inducing a miscarriage. It's like, I don't know. I want less abortion but it's got to stay legal. It has to stay legal. We right. cannot throw a woman in a cage because the economy and the circumstances of our society make her feel so unsupported in bringing a child into the world. And well, so, she, yeah, she, well, you know, she's that land that's being exploited and polluted. There we are again to that metaphor. She has no rights, you know, we're stripping that, uh, the feminine, right? Her, the land, the uh, nature of her rights. This is a this is a a theme, isn't it? A theme that just can't stop and won't stop. I think I remember you telling me, you know, when we were in our soldier days, that uh, <laughs> first, 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 we thought we could own women. <laughs> Humanity thought we could own women. And then we thought we could own the land. Yeah. Right. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's this idea that we can conquer and, and have dominion over something that doesn't belong to us. And, and it's just, it's wild. It's, it's wild to me that I always saw abortion rights as kind of like the very bottom safety net. It's like, you've got the right to clean air, clean water, the right to home you know, we all need food. We, we, we thrive when we have a school that our children enjoy going to. We thrive in a community where we can walk. We, we thrive in a community where we can exist um, and have a purpose, a purpose beyond just working for the money that we need to survive. These are all the things, you know, that, that help a woman, help a person, you know, have a life of dignity and happiness. Right. And the right to say, I cannot be a parent in this system. That's like, that's the net that the trapeze is, is like hoping is going to be there and it's gone. Mm -hmm. And and I just, I, I don't see anyone in our political arena trying, um, I don't know. I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that I don't see anyone because I don't know everyone that's in our political arena. I just know that there's no, there's no woman in the Senate right now that thinks that a woman shouldn't go to jail for having an abortion. And as a woman who's had one, and I'm thankful that I did because now I'm a great mom. God, I mean, I still end up being a single mom, still end up being a broke single mom, you know, but I'm a smarter, wiser, more capable one than I was when I was a teenager. You know, and so 
that's it's it's messy it's all really really messy and there's no like clean tagline there's no sign at a protest that's going to change anyone's minds i think the only thing that's going to compel people to get the government out of the most private personal decision that someone can make is for someone to come out and say yeah i've been there i've done that and i've held women's hands while they were doing while they were feeling that doing that and it's heavy stuff you know it's yeah. like I was able to survive two years in the club and I was able to survive two years in the clinic and it, it it's hard it's painful it's sad it sucks <laughs> that's on front line that's front lines work that's in, in all those spaces you know this what, what you're doing and I wanted you to mention here in a second about the party that you're running with or for or in um, as well, what you're doing and women who are coming forward like you are doing is you're forcing a new philosophy or philosophical question or questions, because at the end of the day, this is deeply philosophical, right? If we're looking to redefine or refine what our idea of being an American is, the, the chasing our destiny, is that for everyone? Can everyone do it? Um, yeah, because it's a lot more complicated than that, right? Oh, can't just go chase my destiny if I you know, can't take care of my own body or have no rights over my own body. I, I can't chase my destiny. So let's be more specific about that if, if that's what you mean. It's, except for you, uh, you can't do that because you, know, you don't have any rights to your body. So that's, that's a thing. So you're forcing a philosophical question, a new one, in a new era. I think women like you, and you are, Brittany, uh, part of this very small group, very courageous women, brave women, asking us, are we ready to change our philosophy? I think it's just time for us to operate on the mind your own business and help wherever you can. Mm -hmm. help however you can and you know when you have the choice between judging someone and labeling and stigmatizing someone as bad you know or the choice to be compassionate and say you know I don't understand but you're still a human being and you deserve dignity like let's go for that you know compassion route so I am mm -hmm. definitely running um in the words of a great philosopher from Baton Rouge, I'm running I-N-D-E-P-E-N-D-E-N-T. Do you know what that means? <laughs> in the words of the great boozy badass, <laughs> I'm running independent um, because I don't believe that a two-party system is bringing about the best in us. I think it's making us exist in an us versus them polarity. And I don't care if you're on the right or on the left. It's just not good for us. It's not because no one exists perfectly in this like, here's your little political script. Here's your little political script. The rest of America is in this middle, uh -huh. you know? And, and the question is like, can we get clean air, clean water, sidewalks, and like really great schools? Can we, can we get, that? can yeah. we get everybody in on that? Like, I find that the media and the public discourse is like, let's get the most polarizing, angry, you know, topics and like, let's rage. And it's like, we're not going to get aqueducts like that, people. Like, we're just right. not. We're, we're not going to get the, the most for what we put in mm -hmm. if we're fighting over dumb shit. Right. I, I, I think I read somewhere... I couldn't tell you where. In fact, once I find the link, I can include this along with your links. Then we'll talk about that in a second. But that more and more people in this country, in the United States of America, are uh, labeling themselves or identifying as politically homeless. Uh, mm. Because, yeah, they feel very similarly that uh, as you feel and as I feel, honestly. Uh, they, they don't, they don't want to check that box, you know. Uh, they want there's something there's more nuance that wants to be born and and I think that you're representing in a lot of ways uh, that voice uh, also for women who we all a lot of us have these stories let's be honest and yeah. and so the more they hear women like you say them out loud and have the audacity uh, it really does encourage courage well you know we're politically homeless and I think I mean 
I know for one, I've definitely felt spiritually homeless in my life. I mean, I've grown up in um, religions and cultures where it's very much like this is the way and this is the only way. And even looking at other philosophies or theologies or religions is considered like being, you know, you're a heretic. And I, you know, I still love Jesus. Now, like my version of Jesus and like what Jesus means to me, what it means to try to be like him is different. Like Mm -hmm. I haven't given all my stuff to the poor. Now, of course, I'm still the poor. Like (laughs) my time hasn't come for that challenge, but all that to say yeah, there's a level of moral homelessness. And I'm not talking about the traditional idea of morality of, you know, don't curse, you know, find one partner, settle down. Like, you know, these are kind of the moralities that I was raising. I'm talking about a morality that can spread throughout all culture, you know, like, respecting people's dignity mm-hmm. realizing that every single human being has value understanding that we will all make mistakes and say things that we regret and allowing people um, the space to evolve and uh, caring for the planet caring for people who have less than we do like there are basic universal moral norms mm-hmm. um, that we could be converging And if you want to call your God by this name or this name or this name, it's like, it's really none of our business. Mm -hmm. But the question is like, are you being a good person? Are are you, are you showing up for people in your life with a spirit of, I want to support you? Are you existing in a spirit of competition? Which I think that's why you and I found each other because you brought this up in the beginning about the, the strip club mirror, you know, it's a double-edged sword because it's so bizarre when women are getting ready at a club as soon as they go downstairs or as soon as they cross that that threshold they're all in competition with one another right you know it's a market Uh and so when you're in the mirror with women you're either in there with the spirit of collaboration like I want you all to feel good I hope everybody has a good night you know I wish you all prosperity or you're in spirit of you know competition where it's you know I'm gonna get the I'm gonna get the guy that's got the most money in here you know and it's like I think that that's where our culture um is is really kind of the rubber is meeting the road like are we going to lean into collaborating with each other or are we going to basically be in the system of like who's better than who right right well this is our fight for resources has forced everyone into that in that space and so you can't really you know view somebody else's humanity or want to see their humanity when you're in competition with them for resources and and so that is a conquer and divide it always works doesn't it all the time throughout different countries throughout different times um and so on so uh brit tell us before we go anything else about dates we need to know about your website your slogan what is it that you're you're aiming for you know anything that you want to share with us before we close out sure sure it's going to be gandolfi.com i'm waiting for the spring equinox (laughs) 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 i'm superstitious whatever it's a great time i'm nervous and i'm terrified i one thing you should all know is i'm absolutely terrified um so having this conversation with you has meant the world to me because i've you know, I admire your bravery and I admire how you have alchemized the experiences of your life and how you show up for other people and you show women how to show up for themselves and you show women how to take the skeletons that they're carrying around in their closet and turn it into a beautiful altar. And I, having this conversation with you has just reminded me that I do have the strength to do that. So yeah you always have you always have you always have and and what a wonderful day to have this conversation with you on international women's day yeah yeah this is uh this is gonna come out a little bit after but this is powerful and i hope that all women who are carrying around any kind of skeletons in their closet that are so afraid of and so ashamed of i hope that if you're listening to this that this has encouraged you uh and, and, and reminded you that you're not alone, 
right? You are not alone, never alone. And uh, our primal power is, is incredible. And that's what I personally hope for every woman to uh, re-encounter. And you, Britt, um, I'm very, very proud of you. Very excited for you. This is exciting, you know, and, and you're not alone. So for all the crap that you might get, uh, understand that you have a lot of people also holding you up. So for all of the crap, you have other people who love you and care about you and truly see your heart and your intentions. Well, one thing I, I got from my evangelical Christian background is, you know, when people give you crap, you just gotta like, take your shoes and do a little bit, <laughs> just <laughs> shake the crap off and keep on going. <laughs> you know, um, thank you. Thank you. Well, my slogans, I, I mean, I, I yeah. don't know. I was, I'm, I'm going to have two, like one is like smile and wave. Like I, <laughs> there was one prayer that I would have for my state is that we would start really acknowledging each other in the public sphere, smiling and waving. It's something I've always been proud of mm. that we would do in the South. We start random conversations in grocery stores, but I'm noticing that uh, the political discourse pulling people apart, like it feels a little colder in these streets. Right. I'm not really feeling the like, hey, my baby, hey, how's it going? Like, I'm not. Right. It's, it's so that's one, and then the other one is let's make Louisiana our dream state. Um, we used to have a bumper sticker called Louisiana, a dream state. It was like our uh, Virginia is for lovers, or I love New York. It was like a really popular slogan, but I think it fell out because this place is actually kind of a nightmare sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> and right. it felt like off so um I was blessed to be neighbors with the guy that came up with that bumper sticker and slogan and I just uh this whole you know make America great again I there were several things I didn't like about that slogan but one was that it was in the command tense uh-huh it's like oh, you yes make it like you know you like it, it externalizes responsibility so I was like, let's, let's make this place, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to play with that expression and put it kind of in the third person plural, meaning we are all responsible to play our own little part to make this place a place that is truly a dream to live in. Because if we can fix, we can fix the problems that are facing us, um, this would be the most beautiful, magical swamp land this country has ever seen. It's beautiful. That place is so, it, it really, it's, unless, it, unless you have lived there and experienced it yourself, it's so hard to describe. Uh, it's, it's more than just to visit. When you live there and actually, you're, it initiates your soul. It really, really does. And uh, you'll never be the same again after experiencing a life in Louisiana, in particular, New Orleans, Louisiana. No. It forever changed me. So, well, thank you so much for, for joining so much. me and here at, at the Living Lilith podcast. I'm going to be including Brittany's, all the links that are necessary yeah. so that everyone Please can donate. support her. <laughs> donate and support Brittany uh, for so many reasons. For so many reasons, I hope that uh, you know what they all are at this point. And we will continue to follow you on your journey. Uh, as this, this goes on and congratulations on graduation from law school thank you and uh, i hope i'll see you in person in may yeah so. look out loyola Griselda. i love you thank you so much for holding the space you're amazing i love you too and so are you happy international women's day to you and happy. to all the badass women watching yes bye thank you very much for listening to me if you did if you didn't then you're a bimbo. Bimbo.